0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the AlbumReview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thank you for listening and thank you for your interactions and feedback. Your feedback is much appreciated and it helps me to always improve. On today's episode, I am welcoming music enthusiast Joe Keats. Joe is going to join me as we review Faith No More's 1992 album, Angel Dust. So I invited Joe on the podcast because he is by far the biggest Faith No More fan I have ever met. And what's even cooler is Joe grew up in New Zealand, lived in Australia for a bit, and now resides in Singapore, where he splits his time as a wine guide for Peterson's Wine Singapore and as a serious music aficionado joe has seen faith no more in several countries around the world and along with this album review he's going to share some stories with us of growing up listening touring and even meeting the band backstage by accident one faithful night okay before i get started i'm reminding you that you can listen to any of my podcast episodes by just going to albumreview.net and click on the podcast tab they can also be heard wherever podcasts are available In addition to this, you can read well over 30 written reviews at albumreview.net and pick up some merchandise from your favorite bands such as t-shirts, albums, sound systems, and you've gotta check out the bookstore, you guys. You wanna learn about your favorite musician or band that you can't find on the internet? Go to albumreview.net and click on the store tab where you can grab a copy of different biographies and autobiographies from such artists as Faith No More who we're gonna be reviewing today I've also got the story of Spotify, Eric Clapton, Motley Crue, Pink Floyd, Tom Petty, Eddie Van Halen, Metallica, and you can also check out books from the previous two authors that I interviewed, Brian O'Connor and Ivan Bodley. Their books are going to have you wanting so much more, I promise. Well, in the spirit of this band and my guest, Joe Keats, Grab a glass of wine, sit back, relax, and listen to part one of this two-part album review of Faith No More's fourth studio album, Angel Dust. So joining me today for this episode is music enthusiast and devoted diehard fan of the band Faith No More, Joe Keats. Joe originally hails from New Zealand and currently resides in Singapore. And Joe and I connected several months ago through a mutual contact, and I am delighted to have him on my show today as his knowledge of this band Faith No More goes deep. I mean deep. So this is a real treat today i think many of you are going to be impressed with joe's knowledge so joe thanks so much for joining me on the AlbumReview.net podcast today man
1: no problems great great to be here i love telling about these guys
0: well we i certainly want to plug your wine company as well use that as an opportunity as well Maybe <laughs> we can we can talk about that uh at the end but um, joe is uh uh also an entrepreneur and, and a uh a business owner today joe and i are going to review the fourth album from San Francisco-based Faith No More, which is titled Angel Dust, one of my favorite bands of the 1980s and 90s. However, I think many of you will be impressed with my guest Joe's knowledge of this album and this band's history. So formed way back in 1979 in San Francisco, California, the band Sharp Young Men, consisting of keyboard player Wade Worthington, lead singer Mike Morris, drummer Mike Borden, and bass player Billy Gould, who we'll talk about a lot today in today's podcast, played several small clubs around the Bay Area. and they The band name soon morphed into Faith No Man, and they hired keyboard player and synth player Roddy Bottom to replace Worthington. The story then takes kind of a twist as a year or so later, Gould, Borden and Bottom all quit Faith No Man together and formed Faith No More. And the story goes that the band actually decided to name themselves Faith No More because the guy who was known as the man, lead singer Mike Morris, was No More, hence the name. Uh, They later hired lead singer Chuck Mosley in 1983 and recorded their first album, We Care A Lot, in 1985. So although we're going to be talking about the band's fourth album today, I have to admit that my knowledge goes back to 1989 with this band. But Joe's knowledge, however, goes back a little bit further. So Joe, what are some of your memories of of the, the older Faith No More and when did you get into them?
1: I got introduced to Introduce Yourself uh, probably 1988. I was about 12, and it was just before The Real Thing went huge. So um, that gave me immense credibility. Uh, I'd already been listening to Faith No More when The Real Thing came out. My high school friends thought I was cutting edge. Um, <laughs> and uh, it wasn't a new album by then. It had been out for a few years, but uh, just those punchy drums and the, the bass, and you mentioned... You're going to be talking about billy Gould a lot which i think is great because um being somebody who's uh, not a musician um i can't maybe pull apart songs the way you can and some of your other guests you've had on a uh, had on these podcasts can so for me particularly early on listening to music was all the the flashy stuff on top so the lead guitars and the vocals that sort of command the attention um and it took me quite a while with faith and more to realize that the heart of the band is that rhythm section you know um, Uh, Billy, Mike on drums and Roddy on the keyboards. They're the three key members of the band that produce a really distinctive sound. And you can hear it right back on those early releases. Um, But particularly, for me, it's easiest in some of the intros where you don't have the guitar or the vocals sort of distracting you yet, hearing those really sort of punchy rhythmic uh, cycles. They play these these really neat loops that uh, sort of define the band and they're they're pounding away underneath all of the songs. Something that I sort of came to appreciate. In later years was that everyone sort of talks about them being old metal, which is a term that a lot of people don't like, particularly the band. But um, in there, there's also some really electronic influences, you know, with the synths and the keyboards. Absolutely. Um, and, and some nods to psychedelic rock as well, you know, going back into the 70s. So a doubt. Um, everyone talks about their sort of genre hopping, uh, but the, the influence underneath here, I think, all comes from the rhythm section. So you know, on a song like Introduce Yourself, it's very simple and repetitive and you know, obviously, some of their later um, compilations, particularly Angel Dust, get a lot more complex. So I have a long history with them, and I think I've had uh, multiple Faith and War t-shirts in my wardrobe probably <laughs> since about, um, 1989.
0: So, so you're this is this is c- good to hear because you're about the same age uh, as me. So um, although we probably got into music around the same time. You definitely got into the band a little bit earlier than than I did. So after the release of their second studio album, "Introduce Yourself," in '87, which again was a little bit before the time that I got into them, lead singer Chuck Mosley's attitude and conduct on and off stage kind of became what the band called violent, increasingly violent, and really unpredictable. He'd he'd do things like fall asleep during some performances and burst into fist fights with some of the other band members at at other performances. So the band kind of made a decision that he had to go. And and as they had started to write music for their follow-up 1989 album, The Real Thing, they hired a guy named Mike Patton to be their lead singer to to sing fill-in vocals for Mosley. Patton fit in well, and the album was a really big success giving the band international fame and recognition as a lot of people might recall. This was, you know, late 1990 and then into 91 and 92 when they were opening for bands such as Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and then headlining major festivals around the world. Joe, you, I think you told me last uh, time we talked that you saw them uh, uh, once or twice in concert?
1: Uh, probably more like half a dozen times. Um, <laughs> Look, my favorite show would probably be when they got back together. Well, it would have been um, 09. I saw them middle of summer in Helsinki. Nice. Uh, and I was actually living in St. Petersburg at the time. And I can remember earlier in the year, trudging along in St. Pete's. And there was uh, this is the Russian one, not the Florida one. Um, yeah. it's trudging along <laughs> in the and uh, I walked past a, a lamppost, and there was a, a band poster on it written in Russian, obviously. And my Russian's pretty average. But I stopped and did a double take. I was like, "Faith, no more." What? <laughs> and you know, they've been broken up for 15 years, whatever it was. And I was like, "This must be a covers band or something." It says they're playing this little club here in town. And I was like, "There's nothing about covers on that." And I just ran to a computer and found out that my favorite band were back together after so long. Um, but I, my visa was expiring before that concert in Russia, so oh, I scooted man. across the border to uh, the. the Concerts were a couple of months later, obviously. Scooted across the border to Finland. Uh, the concert had sold out like instantly. Um, I was ready to jump the fence and risk getting arrested, but I walked around this big park in the middle of Helsinki just yelling, I need a ticket. And eventually, <laughs> a big friend and they, uh, they sold me a ticket. I went in and it was amazing. It was the first time I'd seen them um, outdoors, I think. I think I'd already seen them, uh, only seen them indoor venues. And also with sun on my face, it was. Uh, it was great middle of summer so it doesn't get dark until about 10 30 in finland that time of year uh, so it's probably my favorite
0: food. now i have traveled the world quite a bit but i'm sure you've traveled it five times as much what was it like seeing him in finland and what were some of the other countries that you saw him in concert
1: it was great seeing him in finland uh finns love heavy music uh yeah. so even a lot of the young kids in the crowd that uh would barely have been born when they broke up um were singing along you know, they knew the words to even some quite obscure songs, which was pretty cool. Um, And the support acts that they had were some really heavy stuff. So uh, I didn't know that music, but it was quite cool just to have a decent blast of heavy music in my ears. So, yeah, the Finns have a real appreciation for for that kind of stuff. I also saw Phantomists in the same city several years earlier, another sort of Mike Patton side side project. Um, I've seen Faith No More play in Sydney. I used to live in Australia as well. Uh, a couple of times in Auckland uh, solo shows from Mike Patton as well in Sydney again. So yeah, about half a dozen times I've seen uh Faith no more or uh, some other Patton projects. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think I mentioned to you last time, I only got a chance to see him once and it was in 92 opening up for guns and roses and Metallica and they practically stole the show that night, but it was in a big football stadium. So as cool it, as it was to see them there, it, it, it just wasn't as intimate as seeing him in a, you know, in a theater. So getting back to the the recordings, the, the challenge for the band would come a year prior to 1992. In the year 1991, the group was tasked with recording their follow-up album to the real thing. And this experience uh, as the band stated would really, they thought at the time was really, really going to either make or break them. Instead of folding under the pressure, the band stepped up and recorded what, I think Joe and I think is a a pretty serious masterpiece. And when we were talking about what album to review, you know, we both had thought that this would be a really interesting one. I know it's my personal favorite. So this album was produced by a guy named Matt Wallace and was released on June 8th, 1992 and angel dust gave lead singer, Mike Patton a chance to write music and lyrics along with the rest of the band members for this one, unlike the last album. And Patton was so new to the group during the recording of their breakout album, uh, 89's The Real Thing, that he only contributed to some of the lyric writing, but the band had already fired former singer Chuck Mosley and written all the music for Angel Dust. But although Patton felt a part of the band, he became a true contributor, I think, on this release. So there's just certainly more extremes, I think, Joe, in terms of musical arrangement on this album what do, you, what do you think, you know, in comparison to The Real Thing?
1: Yeah, you're right. You said um, when Patton joined the band to uh, do the, the vocals and some of the lyrics for The Real Thing, that he was a good fit. And in many ways he was, but there's also, you know, uh, famous friction with, uh, with band members. Uh, and Mike Patton is about five years younger than the other guys. So he was this brash young kid that uh, sort of came in and had a bit of an attitude. When it came to writing the music for Angel Dust, he didn't know how to write a song. So even though he had his, um, his right. other band, Mr Bungle, going on, he they made sounds. So he would have these ideas in his head. And there's some quite famous quotes from Matt Wallace, who's you know uh, pretty amazing at what he does. Yeah. But um, Mike Patton would just come in and say, all right, I've got this thing that should go just make these noises and the rest of the band would be like oh, okay oh, well this is how we write this for bass and this is how we write this on keys and so he would literally just be making the sounds and matt wallace would be going that's off key that's not going to work what are, you, what are you thinking and then all the pieces would be written and played together and he was like oh my god you can hear in four dimensions it's insane <laughs> it works so, yeah, he, he was much more active and, well, he actually participated in the, the songwriting this time around as opposed to the real thing. But, yeah, for a couple of fun facts for listeners that they might not know. They faith them all with that core of drums, keyboards, and bass, went through quite a few guitarists and singers, and there's some pretty big names in there. But the one that always gets thrown up, of course, is uh, Courtney Love. So she, she actually jammed with them quite a lot uh, before they settled on having Mike Patton in there. And wow. some pretty heavy guitarists came through as well. But one of my favorite facts about the early, it wasn't a Faith No More offshoot, but Mike Borden, the drummer, he played one of his first bands, included Cliff Burton, the bass player, the original bass player from Metallica. Sure. And another, another guy called Eddie. I'll tell you which Eddie, but it's not um, Eddie Better, which would what we're assuming. They're in a band called uh, Fry By Night. It was supposed to be Fly By Night, but there was a typo on some of their flyers. Um, and they <laughs> I think I did a couple of teenagers. I think I did a couple of gigs and garages or something like that. But Eddie was from the, ba- uh, Eddie and Charles that did what I lie to you. So you've got you know, this amazing oh, yeah. heavy drummer, this amazing bass player, and then something that's like soul, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> fun little facts about the sort of interplay of musicians in the late eighties, early nineties.
0: The The band stated that there's a, on angel dust, there's a larger amount of heavy stuff than the real thing, but there's also a greater amount of softer stuff. So it's kind of like, well, which one? I think I remember seeing in an interview that they, they mentioned they didn't want to put out a record with just one mood. They were sick of all the, the metal and classic rock that was out at the time. And I think Angel Dust had a real visceral, brutal delivery. The riffs are, I was thinking about the word that I thought best described it. And the only word I could come up with was disgusting. And I mean that in the most positive way. Uh, I, I really think that's the best description. I think I think Jim Martin, the guitar player's, his sound and style—it's it's just thick. He rocks that flying V guitar with a volume that it's it's perfectly mixed. It doesn't carry over Roddy Bottom's synth and keyboards, and it blends perfectly through every track. Now, getting back to I think what really, with the exception of maybe Mike Patton, what really drives the album is bass player, Billy Gould. And he seems to come off as one of the leaders of the band. And during interviews, he appears to have, you know, it, it seemed like he, he appeared to have most of the answers when asked uh, whether they were relevant or not. And he also appears to be the songwriter on most of the tracks and m- most of the musical arrangements for this Joe, Would you agree?
1: Yeah, like, I, he's definitely the heartbeat of the band. Um, he, he was the guy doing uh he was the responsible dad type figure you know early days making sure that people got to rehearsals and doing a lot of the organizing i think from memory he, his parents were lawyers so his dad was a lawyer or something like that so oh, wow. he maybe had a little, little bit more structure <laughs> in his life than uh, some of the others but yeah he's always been um the, the driving force uh, i think for faith no more and we, you said that uh jim's guitar is disgusting and filthy and it is uh, I, I, I miss having him in the band, although I get the feeling most of the band members don't. There's a reason that his guitar doesn't overpower the bass and the keys, and that's because he only contributed to the songwriting on four tracks on this album. So uh, Gould was by and large writing the um, guitar uh, and sending them, and this is something they started earlier in the recording process. They would send tapes early days uh, up and down the coast to one another. Right. And, um, you know, get feedback on the, the different musical pieces and then stick them together when they went into the studio. So yeah, Jim Martin, uh played on pretty much every track or every track I'd imagine, but um, he only actually yes, contributed to writing it on four of them. Um, and one of them is "Jizzle which is your heavy, dirty heavy. song at the end of the album.
0: Yeah, Big time. Dad, yeah, do you think, Joe, do you think that that was, do you think that the the mixing was kind of intentional? You know, I, I, I don't want to dive down too much of a rabbit hole, but I've always thought about, Metallica and and how they kind of, in many cases, on many albums, kind of buried the bass a little bit. You know, in this case, I don't want to say they buried Jim's guitar, but look, I'm not complaining. I think it, I think it was perfectly mixed and I was really, really listening deep and analyzing it. But do you think any of that was intentional? Because it sounds like they really, you know, not long after this album was released or perhaps maybe a few years later, they, they really had a falling out and parted ways.
1: Yeah. Uh, like I said earlier, there's always friction between band members. And um, once Chuck was gone, I think uh, Jim was uh, the one that fit least with the band. He was always basically pure metal and the band never saw themselves like that. So right. um, the, there's a lot of quotes in their history that, they didn't really want a guitarist, but there were a few bits where they felt like they needed a guitarist. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, obviously good any point. any good guitarist is going to want to put more of their signature into the songs. But uh, that, that rhythm section we've spoken about was like, no, 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 we're going with we're going with this sound. We're not going with the four minute uh, guitar solo in the middle of it. Felt a little, little bit for Jim, but I love their music, so I can't complain with the way the final mix ended up. I guess.
0: And he had such a distinct look, too. I mean, I think all the band members did, but just whenever I would see them on stage, whether it was live or uh, on TV, I think he just stuck out, not only because of his long hair and his long beard, but just his flying V. But you're right. You're right, Joe. I think he was, you know, a a lot more metal than the rest of the guys. And like I was saying earlier, I think the the rest of the band was kind of tired of the, you know, the heavy metal and classic rock that was out and they wanted to do something a little bit different. So now before we dive into all the songs, the album cover to angel dust originally said to be named and designed by Billy Gould and Roddy bottom. It has an, an egret on the cover, which is a, you know, a a white heron or in other words, a, a white bird resembling a swan and a duck. of mixed together the egrets in the the forefront with a, a dark blue and black background what i think is insinuating kind of an evil connotation you know leaving the viewer to really decide the intention but roddy bottom stated that he actually chose the name for the album angel dust because it summed up what angel dust did perfectly which essentially it's a really beautiful name for a really hideous drug that should make people think.
1: Yeah, and um, of course, the back cover featured uh, instead of that beautiful bird on the front, there was uh, carcasses hanging on hooks. Right, uh, right. Animal carcasses. Yeah, and yeah, so that's something i have spoken about a couple of times: is sort of the, the light and the dark, or the the beauty and the hideousness together. So you'll have some like gorgeous, flowing intros to the songs, and those heavy, crunchy, crunching guitars coming in. Yep, um, and I think that's what makes it great. You know that that contrast and that diversity. But yeah, it's definitely a constant theme. And you'll see it in the lyrics as well, actually. There's sort of the light and dark, the beauty and the hideous going on right through the album. You referenced, you know, they they didn't want to be like all those other sort of hair metal bands that were floating around in the late 80s, early 90s. I read something, psychologists reckon that a lot of your music hardwiring, the things you really appreciate, are formed in your brain when you're about 14 or 15. So when we were that age, and this is... uh, something that you might have seen floating around on the internet before. It was a 44-day period in 91, which is when they were doing the bulk of the writing for this album, where the following albums were all released within the space of six weeks, right? Uh, Metallica's album, Pearl Jam 10s, both of Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusions, a bunch of Magic from the Chili's, Soundgarden, Nirvana, all of these releases occurred within six weeks when our brains have been hardwired to appreciate music. And just like me, Greg, you probably thought, oh, this is going to happen forever. We'll have these kind of musical releases. Right,
0: (laughs) right. I did. That's kind of what depresses me nowadays. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Joe, because we just hit the 30th anniversary for the, the release of the Black album. I think it was about a week ago. All those other albums you were just talking about that were released in 91 as well. Yeah, that was 91 and 92 were... Yeah, I, I don't know how else to say it, or, or I don't know what else to do but just exhale. Just makes it,
1: it sound old, doesn't it? They don't make music like this anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> both, uh, both the bass player Billy Gould and, and drummer Mike Borden, they said that the image on the backside of the album, which which you mentioned, Joe, it shows the skin chickens and cow heads hanging in a slaughterhouse. This is kind of to your point. It's it's not based on support for vegetarianism, but rather a preview of the music suggesting its combination of being really aggressive and disturbing and then kind of soothing. Uh, and I'm quoting uh, Billy here, you know, mixing the beautiful with the sick. And that's kind of how I looked at other bands like Pink Floyd. When I first started listening to them, there were some very dark moments of some of their earlier songs and then some absolutely beautiful moments. And I think especially on angel dust on this album that, that there a lot of the verses start out with just darkness and, and screaming and, and, and chanting. And then you get this beautiful melodic chorus or bridge that just makes you stick. All right. Diving into the, into the tracks now. So the album starts off with the song land of sunshine But as I was saying, deep with evil laughter and Billy Gould's playing his bass playing carries the song again, I think, and it guides you the entire way through. And, and Mike Patton's lyrics, uh, let's face it, they're storytelling. He, he moves from talking to singing to yelling to once again, just evil laughter. I, I don't know. I really like this. I really like this song, Joe. What do you think?
1: Yeah. What a great opening. Uh, Like you said, it's got quite a sort of happy vibe. In fact, the working title for it was the funk song. And this is famously, uh, this and the next track, Mike Patton's contributions came when he was doing a sleep deprivation experiment on himself. The next track's called Caffeine. So there's a big hint there. So he was watching late night TV. He said he was driving a little car into the roughest parts of town and just hanging outside trashy diners and observing humanity. and A lot of the lyrics in the song come from uh, Scientology questions or, or late-night TV, uh, fortune cookies, just like the most random influences. Does emotional music have quite an effect on you? Who's going to say no to that? It's emotional music, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um you've got just that um, disparity between sort of the happy bouncy aspect of the song, which don't get me wrong, it's still very heavy. And then the, these lyrics taking you into a dark place, even though it's quite a happy, innocent question, it's just, you automatically sort of feel the flip side of it. But he, he would be saying up for three to four days at a time. That was a lot of his contribution. And this was one of the songs where uh, Jim Mutt did have an impact on the songwriting on the guitar pieces. So I think it's about mortality. Uh, you've got those disturbing carnival-like keyboards. Mike Patton's gone on record multiple times as saying that he doesn't think too much about the meaning of the words he uses. A lot of the right. times he's just as, as sounds because it's right. the right length or it rhymes or it has the right rhythm or whatever. Um, I think he's obfuscating a bit there. I think a lot of the times the lyrics, yeah, obviously do have a bit of meaning. But uh, this is one I think where he was just putting whatever sound bites you felt like in there in terms of lyrics. But it's probably not a bad time to to mention sampling. So you said all of the the screaming and stuff that features throughout the album. Sampling was just starting to become a thing. And uh, Roddy and uh, Mike Borden in particular, they used to carry around uh, tape recorders, (laughs) very analog and just record sounds that they heard when they were out and about. And a lot of those got worked into this album. Um, and I don't know if you heard the story, Greg, that they actually lost uh, their, their box of samples. Did you hear it? No, hear about I did it? not. No. I think it was when they went in for recording, and there was a, literally a big cardboard box, and one of their road crew was in charge of unloading the van. And uh, they got everything inside, and i um, pretty sure it was Mike Gordon's samples. It might have been Roddy's, I can't remember, but, but was uh, was that box of samples. Uh, I don't know, I brought everything in from the van, but he had the van open outside but he was bringing things inside. Some dodgy local guy just come and grabbed a box and taken off. So they didn't have it. He was starting, the, the roadie was starting to cop a lot of heat and this random sketchy looking guy turned up and said, uh, I might have something of yours. And he was <laughs> like, I need this. I, I need this. <laughs> and, uh, the guy like took him down the road and upstairs and into an apartment and then like closed the door behind him. It wasn't until that point he was like, I might have made a very bad mistake here.
0: <laughs> so the <laughs> guy no, fessed thing. up. The guy fessed up to it and gave it all back.
1: He was trying to he was trying to fence it back to them. He was trying to sell it back to them. Sell I've just stolen it. this off you, but yeah, yeah. You can get it back. I, I don't think he actually had that over any cash. I think he just picked up the box and got got back out of there. Yeah, but those samples. Like...
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow.
1: It wasn't like today where they would just be sitting on the cloud and you just retrieve them from somewhere else. Right. That was a big right. deal that they were gone. So this crazy sampling right through the album. From the likes of uh, Shostakovich, a Russian composer, to uh, Beastie Boys. They're actually sampling a Beastie Boys song that samples itself. But This is very early days of doing this kind of thing. Right. Um, stuff in uh, Lobber from when Jim Martin was doing a trip on the Amazon River. And he actually, same thing, took a tape recorder with him and there's Howler Monkeys or something that are, you know feature in the song. So very early adapters of that kind of stuff. So again, trying to put a genre on what these guys do is almost impossible with that
0: yeah i would totally agree one of my favorite parts in the first song is when mike goes here's how to order here's how to takes you off to the to the heavy part i think that's sort of the the bridge to the i don't know. i think the song is superb it's very rocky but straight to the point point. and joe you touched upon a bunch of things that i wanted to piggyback off of you know that, that he did he came up with a lot of these lyrics from fortune cookies he purchased a bunch of bags of fortune cookies and took phrases from them like um You're an angel headed for a land of sunshine. That's something that he claimed he saw in a fortune cookie. Pat yourself on the back and give yourself a handshake. All came from these these Asian desserts. Uh, And then Mike just juxtaposed these positive declarations with several questions that he found on a personality test. Uh, Again, just like you had touched upon, Joe, from the uh, Church of Scientology. Do you sing or whistle just for fun? Do others push you around? Uh, and then the one you mentioned Joe does emotional music have quite an effect on you i just think this eerie combination when i found all this out this this eerie combination made for an appropriately disturbed opening track for the album and i love the fact that when i was you know a young kid i was uh, 13 14 15 years old i liked being disturbed when I listen to music. I liked horror movies, but I liked music that made me think. Uh, And I guess for some reason, I never got turned on to, you know, uh, stuff when they were talking about the devil or actually like, you know, committing murder. But things like this just kind of made you think, like, I wonder what they were thinking, just really drew me. So moving on to the next song you were saying, you were talking about it earlier, Joe, Caffeine. This song just continues the heaviness. guys in the band might uh, might disagree with me, but I think this is more of a kind of a heavy metal song. Maybe the reason that they were sort of lumped in with some of those bands. The band stated that they wanted to move away from that as they were quoted saying, uh, you know, the, the funk metal style of their prior releases towards a more comprehensive sound. Comprehensive is really, I think I- exactly what every song on this album is. You know, this this song Caffeine slows down, letting the screams and taunts, there's always one thing to bring you up out of your seat. And I can remember cutting my grass as a kid, 28, 29 years ago, when this was released and singing along and talking along with the lyrics as I'd be pushing my lawnmower across the grass. And Mike Patton goes from talking to you to just screaming in your ear. And I would begin to lip sync these screams in just total despair. And I'm sure my neighbors across the street thought I was just completely insane, but <laughs> Patton is just, he's just like no other person. I think on this record.
1: Yeah. He um, he's been, figured out somehow it's been the biggest vocal range in contemporary music you know, so um, just an insane voice he does zombie voiceovers in computer games and his repertoire is just massive but, so yeah the, the song is like you said uh, very very heavy but I agree with you the band might not agree that it's heavy metal because it was always a tag that they're kind of a little bit uncomfortable with
0: Right. Um, and I,
1: I don't know what the strict definition of heavy metal is, but this song was pretty bloody heavy for me, and I love it. Right. Uh, and again, that, that Sleep to, bri- sleep to made maniacal sort of vibe coming through from patterns variations. It's, it's just quite intense. When they were playing some of these tracks, and I can imagine this one would have featured very heavily to the record execs, the famous quote is record exec saying to them, well, I hope none of you have just bought houses, because they were convinced... <laughs> They were convinced this album was going to tank. I think it was just a little bit too intense on those first couple of listenings, which I get it because I, I found that with uh, quite a lot of their music, it does take me a few listens to get into. So you can imagine it. Zach, who's been spoon-fed hair metal for a few years, uh, copying something like Caffeine in his ears would have been like, oh, this isn't going to make any money for us.
0: Right. The band right.
1: made, famously, the record they wanted to make. And they had all just bought houses off, this, this, off the success of the real thing. So right. apparently there's an awkward moment.
0: Yeah, that you, it's funny, you, you bring up a great point and that kind of leads me to my next transition. The next song, which was kind of an MTV hit in 1992, 93, Midlife Crisis. It starts off with, with Mike Patton giving his best death metal voice, but in kind of a slow progression. hit especially during the verse and then what once again as we talked about it earlier what's unique about faith no more is that his singing during the chorus is so melodic and so heartfelt and you can see kind of you can see how it sort of be radio friendly so maybe it was songs like that that kind of helped uh drive sales of the of the record It, it it probably at first lures in those death metal fans they're like oh yeah i like that i like this and then I think this song sort of scares them off when they hear the, the the melody and the chorus and the range of Patton's voice during the chorus. Maybe it's a little bit too soft for them. I, I think Mike is almost like Zach De La Rocha uh, from Rage Against the Machine, his kind of angry voice. It's very guttural, but it's direct. It, it gets your attention. I know it, it definitely got mine. And, and while doing a deep research dive on this album, I stumbled upon a bunch of Interviews uh, and videos of Patton singing with many different orchestras. Uh, did you remember seeing that as well, Joe?
1: Yeah, yeah, he still does the occasional opera piece and things like that, and uh, 1960s Italian pop. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just it's such a wide array of things.
0: Yeah, he stated that he. He tried to make his voice sound like other instruments on the album. And I'm, I'm putting the word other in quotation marks, which I think is just extremely interesting. Like it, he wanted people to question whether they were hearing a violin or a harp or a guitar, when in fact it was just his vocal cords straight up. Other band members likened Mike's vocal sound to Tibetan monk chants, or in some cases, I remember reading they they commented he sometimes sounded like a seagull.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the sounds that come out of there, they I think credit in the album notes a Canadian company that did free sound samples, and uh, Matt Wallace, producer, is on record as saying, uh, you know, "Try and figure out what's what. You know, is that Mike Patton or is that a sample?" Um,
0: <laughs> like playing a game in the studio.
1: <laughs> well, midlife crisis for me is my favorite song off my favorite album by my favorite band and i thought for a long time that it was my little thing uh but you know, i found out a few years ago that in a poll of faith and more fans it actually comes out number one as the fan favorite and it's really interesting uh there's a, a bit of a there's not a bit there's actually quite a big difference between um, the u.s appreciation for this album versus the rest of the world so uh, Midlife Crisis hit number one in the US, didn't make a big splash in other countries. So maybe that's why you know, me living in the Southern Hemisphere thought you know, not too many people appreciate the song the way I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the album has sold better outside the US than it has inside the US uh, compared to other Faith No More albums. In Australia, where I was living at the time, or actually later on, at Easy, which was added to the album when it was re-released. Right. Yeah, so the, the Commodores, yeah. Lionel Richie cover. The Commodores, yeah. Lionel
0: Richie cover. Yep, great cover. Yeah, got,
1: the, got the number one in Australia and didn't chart at all in the US. Yeah, uh, so I, yeah, it's, I think the uh, reception in the US to this band was maybe a little more difficult because that diet of MTV sort of slightly more mainstream that a lot of people were exposed to, whereas it was massive in the Nordic countries, German-speaking countries in Europe, and famously huge in South America. So uh, Chile and uh, Brazil, just massive love affair between uh, Faith No More and, and those countries.
0: And I wonder, um, why, I wonder why that is, Joe. I wonder if it's because they did a lot more touring there, or you know, I and and that's not necessarily my opinion, but I like to pose the question. And I think, I think that in many ways, a lot of the countries you mentioned just have more of appreciation for complex music. I really think that.
1: Yeah, you know. I guess if you don't have that infrastructure of massive mainstream radio stations, it's perhaps easier to appreciate things are a little bit left field. You're kind of free to
0: choose on your own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, 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 a couple of years ago, I saw a movie called flight six, 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 which is a documentary about iron maiden. And I was Mm -hmm. just blown away when they were showing, you know, in 2007 or 2008, they went on a a tour around the world and their shows in the U S you know they were cool. And I've seen Maiden three or four times, and the crowd's great. But God, go see him in South America, and it's like it's like the president is there. I mean, the sound of the crowd is so loud. And I picked up a lot of uh, um, I picked up a lot of that on bands like Fake No More as well, where they were really able to sell out larger venues in other parts of the world than the U.S. So I'm wondering if that you brought up a great point, Joe. I I wonder if it's really that you know, the mainstream, you know, as, as although MTV did exist in other parts of the world, it was such a driving force here in the U S. And as much as I've commented on so many previous podcast episodes, how much I miss it because it turned me on to so many new things and made me fall in love with certain things. It also did kind of guide and direct my tastes and, um, you know, perhaps for you growing up, you didn't have that as much. So you got to really form your own own opinion.
1: Yeah. I mean, early on, we were still, yeah swapping dubbed cassette tapes where you would record some of your favorite tapes on some blank tapes. tapes. And then swap I love that with your word friends.
0: dubbed. Yeah. I love that word. I use that word in front of my kids and they look at me like I have five heads. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. And also one thing that helped them in Chile was they did, uh, just as the dictatorship was falling apart, they, uh, they did a show on TV, like this big sort of cultural festival, mm-hmm. which Uh, From what I understand, might feature people in heels dancing salsa or something like, uh, or orchestral bands. And Faith No More came in there and tore it up. And famously, you know, figures, you know, famous uh, TV figures in Chile were saying, "Oh, this is disgusting. This band is terrible." And of course, all of the kids went, "Well, if you don't like it, we think it's ace."
0: Yeah. So um,
1: and I. so I think they just happened to land in Chile and be that, that voice of rebellion at just the right time. Right. Uh, that's maybe like, that part of the world has a love affair with them.
0: So the next track RV, I think goes in a completely different direction. It has a really mellow, slow beat with Mike Patton, just kind of talking weird in the background. That was the only thing I could think of when I was sort of listening to it, saying things like my feet itch only to then launch in this guttural I hate you talking to myself. That's my uh, my my best impression of Mike Patton. It's clear from his lyrics, this is either a direct reflection or a story that Patton's telling about growing up in an RV or in a trailer park. But when I did some investigating, I, I didn't really come up with much. But I, it, it's got to be. I, you know, he he writes during this song. You know, it, it very randomly ends with him kind of mumbling i think it's time don't worry everybody i'm not gonna i'm not gonna imitate him this time i think it's time i had a talk with my kids i'll just tell them what my daddy told me you ain't never gonna amount to nothing and then the song just kind of goes boom 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 and ends and i remember thinking as a kid like wow that's pretty okay. dark <laughs> yeah. anyway time for dinner my feet itch I don't know what he, <laughs> i i think this is really telling i think it's you know as i was we were talking a little bit earlier joe and i was i think telling you the last time we talked it was extremely difficult for me to locate interviews where any of the band members were kind of speaking from the heart or really taking the interview seriously and i found it kind of challenging to get inside the mind of this band especially mike patton but i think you mentioned to me that you know you had seen some interviews, or heard some interviews, or read some literature, or uh, some print interviews that um, you know where they were talking a little bit more in detail.
1: Yeah, it's always hard to sort of separate fact from fiction with them because they right. do um, take the piss. Uh, I don't know if I can say that or if uh, your American listeners would understand it, but make fun of, just uh, completely be stupid about an issue, not take it seriously at all. Fairly sure Mike didn't grow up in a trailer. His uh, his dad was a High school teacher and, and uh, sports coach. And I think he had a fairly middle class sort of upbringing. This to me is just them taking the piss. Uh, yeah. What genre are we, we going to mess around with today? No, let's have a poke at country. Yeah, I, I think he's not maybe being auto, autobiographical here, but sort of looking at what he's quoted as being the, the white trash part, white trash part in American society. And I think this is another song that sort of. Touching on mortality, and uh, I don't think the character he's playing in the song really wants to be alive too much longer, you eh?
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great. I think that's a great point. Yeah, and and perhaps maybe when the music gods were you know trying to put this band in a category again or in a genre, you know, they heard the first couple of songs and they thought, all right, you know, we got to lump this with metal, right? They're touring with Metallica, or maybe they're hard rock because they're also touring with Guns N' Roses. But then you hear a song like RV. And you're like, geez, what the hell are these guys? I don't know. And that's also what intrigued me. You know, even though RV is not one of my favorite songs on the record, I never, ever skip it because I think it just gives such a great mood change to the album. Because, you know, yesterday morning, I have a, a routine now. If I do get the kitchen to myself on a Sunday morning, I'll make my breakfast And if my kids are there, my wife's there, I'll make them breakfast as well. But if they've already made their stuff and they're out for the morning, then I'll throw on some music and I'll make my breakfast and make my coffee. And I I, almost every, every time I do this within one or two songs, I'm kind of like, all right, let me change the tempo. But I just, I threw on angel dust again yesterday and listened to the whole thing through. And it was, I was like, you know, that's another thing I want to add to this podcast that we're talking about here is the mood just changes so much that you know, it, it, you could be at the gym working out or you could be going for a walk or you could be hanging out fishing. I think that's just also what's so unique about this album, what makes it so great. Mm.
1: Yeah, a very hard listen if you're new to the band, right? Or if your only exposure was from the songs totally from the real thing. You know, if you, if you just knew Epic and the real thing from MTV and then they stuff this in your ears, it's going to be like, I might go and find Guns N' Roses again or, you know, Chili right. Peppers or if it was a little bit more accessible, which is really understandable. Right. As I've said, even as a big fan from years before, you know, a few years before, it still takes a few lessons to really have um, the hard edges meld into your brain.
0: So the next track, Smaller and Smaller, kind of continues down that metal path. And God, it, as I revisited this record again, I, I'm recalling all my feelings that just kind of splashed upon me when I was listening to it back in 92 for the first time. liked it even more than The Real Thing. Um, and I have to admit, I was a little bandwagon-y. I, I heard Epic uh, off The Real Thing in, in 89 or 90. I think it was 90 because the album came out, I think, in late 89. And uh, and I was a fan and I was a fan of the whole record. But when this one came out, it was like, oh my God, I love these guys even more. So Mike Patton, he adds his screams in again with his melodic singing. But this one's smaller and smaller. This one's heavy. And among as you were saying, Joe, earlier, they use a lot of samples added onto this record. This song includes a Native American chanting in the middle of it. And Roddy Bottom's synth and keyboards play a crucial role, not only on this track, but on the entire album. And again, uh, due to kind of minimal factual information that I could find, I can only speculate, this song is either about the reservation land of the Native American Indian, getting smaller and smaller as European settlers took over North America or something related to the oppression of, you know, a person race or religious group, just like you were saying, kind of talking about a story or, or making up a story just to, just to kind of cover for the song. But although they keep getting smaller and smaller in numbers relating back to the the native Americans, they just keep coming back. I don't know, Joe, what do you know about the song? Is there any truth to that?
1: Well, Mike Patton's got Native American heritage. Um, I can't remember if it's, it's his mum or dad or both. So, yeah, look, maybe it is uh, related to reservations. Um, there's a few songs on the album, a couple more coming up as well, where um, sort of capitalism and you know, trickle-down economics seem to be getting a good roasting. For me, a simple reading is just sort of in that broad context of you know anti-capitalism or, or something along those lines. Uh, but yeah, uh, the, maybe not a coincidence that he's featuring Native American chants in the song. And this is a song that they've never ever played live. So I don't know whether oh. his parents had a chat to him about uh, maybe, maybe for them it wasn't culturally appropriate to include that chanting in a live performance. Although if it's out on, on record, I'm not quite sure how that fits in but yeah uh he does have that ancestry and uh it's actually referenced in some articles as being aboriginal chanting which it absolutely is but i, I know from experience of a lot of people when they see the word aboriginal think native australians but of course it's a term that means any native person but just for some reason it's largely stuck with the australian aboriginals
0: yeah that's a good point i don't know why it ever came like that i think a lot, a lot of american movies it sort of pointed to that as well but you're absolutely right for the next track, if, um, if you know someone who is not a fan of Faith No More, uh, I don't know, Joe, I think you could probably start them off with this song, Everything's Ruined. song begins it's really catchy it's got a really catchy melody followed by mike patton's typical singing and then into screaming which is definitely going to scare your kids but only to what i like to call i wrote this down only to spill out like a river into a lake with a beautiful bridge and a beautiful chorus with mike patton just singing his tail off forcing you to listen Think about this song i had difficulty trying to figure out whether this song was my favorite or whether it was you know whether i shared with with yours as well thought it was midlife crisis i don't know what do you think about this one
1: yeah i think you're right midlife crisis and everything's ruined were probably the two that stood out on the first lesson listen because listened because i had a little bit more easy listening if you like i tried to get my uh, my girlfriend's children into this well into all of this kind of music uh, so whenever we're driving in the car, I'll be taken over the over the radio. When it's your turn. Uh, uh, yeah, I try and make it my turn. I complain <laughs> that I need my phone in there for navigation because I'm still learning Singapore's roads. But really, I don't <laughs> want Juice World and contemporary hip hop coming in. It's not my thing. But I, <laughs> the kids had all just been absolutely feral. We'd had a day out, and the kids were rebelling. So we had these three kids between six and twelve in the car that were very angry. And my girlfriend had just been yelling at them all. So I tried to sort of like mood it. I was like, hey guys, have listened to this song. This is one of my favorites. And I put on Everything's Ruined because it's got that, you know, gender intro. And it just dead silence in the car for quite a that's a good quite sign. A few seconds. Then the six year old who was just staring angrily out the window, little blonde girl, she's like terrible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs>
1: Broke my heart. <laughs> I think I could have put on um, any kind of music then and it would have got a bad review. She was just in,
0: a, in a I was just going to say that. Yeah. It'll, she'll come around for sure. I, I, I can remember being in fourth grade and listening to Pink Floyd and saying almost the same thing. So the, the teenager me was like, what was I thinking? No, I just, I think that this song is, yeah, it was featured on MTV in the nineties. Uh, I knew the minute that I heard the album that that was going to be a single even before it was released as a single. I just, I think it's catchy. It's just really well-written. It kind of adds each mood into one compressed song. But man, when that chorus hits you, I just, I remember when I heard it again, that's, I remember why I love this song. So I think Mike Borden also, we haven't really talked too much about him. He kind of displays his underrated drumming skills on this track. He he actually, he he displays skills all over this album, but Borden is also performed with, uh, bands such as Black Sabbath, Korn, Jerry Cantrell of uh, Alice in Chains, another band, uh, uh, more recent band uh, called Black Label Society. And then he also played with Primus, who I'm actually going to be going to see next Friday. Very excited about that. He, uh, he also played alongside all three Metallica bass players, as I think you had mentioned earlier, Cliff Burton in a band called Easy Street. And then with Jason Newstead and Robert Trujillo with Ozzy Osbourne and and Jerry Cantrell. So he's not your typical metal drummer, Joe. You know, you notice Mike Borden's style, it's kind of includes jazz and reggae when he drums and no beats are typical. And as I always like to say, I always give a drummer props when I have absolutely no ability to air drum to it. That's my that's my test.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, from memory, I think he was playing a lot of bongos starting out. I can remember, I think it was Billy Gould said in an ed- interview that uh, one of the first times he was over at his house, you know, they were mid-teens or whatever, and Mike Borden was really excited about this new band that he thought was going to be huge that nobody had heard of in the US. Uh, They're called U2. <laughs> 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 but, so, yeah, there's some d- diverse influences for sure, but I think the fact he just doesn't seem to have any ego about him. He doesn't need that five-minute drum solo, but right. when, he does, when he does put a couple of flourishes on, he's an incredible drummer. And uh, you asked me earlier about my favorite concert out of the ones I've been to. Uh, I thought after I told the Helsinki story, I was like, oh, but there was that time in Auckland. So I think it was the King for a Day tour. There was a, a signing at Real Groovy, which is a record store right in the middle of Auckland that was legendary. we turned up and it was just mobbed there were thousands of people there you couldn't get in the door uh so we went somewhere probably to drink underage before we went into the concert venue (laughs) and um i wanted to go and have a look at the poster range they had there so once the clouds had cleared and the the signing had obviously finished a couple of hours later i ducked back in there and left my friends in a park and um Got right down the back of the store, which is quite large, and right in the back row, standing there just staring into space, was Mike Gordon. And I was like, and I was like, oh hey, I'm going to see you guys tonight. He was just like, oh. I was like,
0: yeah, that's usually the response, right? It's like you're 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 hero, and you're like, hey, hey, and they're like, hey, yeah, cool.
1: Well, um, they're not. They're not a sex drug and sex drugs on rock and roll kind of band, although what uh, right. he did have is with heroin. But I was convinced that he was out of his mind on something, whether it was pot or, or something stronger.
0: Huh.
1: And uh, he just didn't seem to be registering much. And It was only a couple of hours to kick off on the concert. So wow. I
0: thought,
1: okay, uh, no conversation here. Uh,
0: <laughs> I, I guess I'll just say uh, hello, goodbye and take care. Yeah. Aloha.
1: Aloha. <laughs> <So I, laughs> Rolled back to my friends and I was like, I don't know if there's going to be a concert tonight. I just saw sort of the drummer and he didn't look like he was. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: but of course, he got on stage and killed it. It was amazing. And then at the end of that show, um, one of a, a friend of a friend that was in our group really didn't like the guy. Couldn't stand hanging out with him. And uh, this is back in the days before cell phones. We were getting picked up at a certain time in a certain place. It was right. organized. So we. Go. Yep. And uh, so we, we had about 45 minutes to kill and I didn't want to stay listening to this guy. So I am just <laughs> going for a little walk. Um, probably why I went back to the earliest uh, record store earlier in the day, to be honest. And I bought a long sleeve t-shirt at the gig. I had very long hair then, uh, tied back in a ponytail. We've got a good mosh workout at the uh, during the show. Nice. And um, I walked around the side of the venue, it was theatre, and the support band, which was a New Zealand band called Pumpkinhead, they were uh, loading their their stuff into their van. And I was like, oh, great show, loved it. Chatting to the guitarist a bit. And I saw a door with a big security guard standing beside it that obviously went to the backstage area. So I thought, oh, I'm just gonna try this. So I just walked up to him like I owned the place, said, excuse me, mate, and put my arm gently on him and moved him to the side and walked in. And he was like, oh, must belong here.
0: That's Um, how I did
1: Strolled around backstage, So this is fascinating, this is great, there's a lot going on. But then realized everybody else had these bright orange tags hanging around their neck, and I didn't have one.
0: Um, Only a matter of time you were caught.
1: Only a matter of time, right? (laughs) I was a teenager, 17, whatever I was at the time. I should should avoid crowds. So I saw a corridor with not many people, so I sort of ducked in there, opened a door, and it was a completely empty, unused changing room. So I sort of composed my thoughts there. I was like, okay, don't go that way because there's too many people. Go the other way. Just act like you work here, right? Yeah. So I went back out into the corridor. There's a door at the end of it. I opened, closed it, and I was in the changing room with Faith No More. Just me and the band. Just five minutes after they came off stage, like dripping with sweat. And my slightly intoxicated teenage brain was just on a loop going, just act like you work here. Just act like you work here. Right.
0: right. I would have done the same thing. But what did you do?
1: I was like, uh, uh, hey, can I, can I get you guys anything?
0: That's perfect. And, uh, That's what you need to do. Perfect. Yeah. Rather than like fanboy out, which you probably wanted to do, which probably took everything in your in your soul not to do, but instead you asked them what they wanted, and they're what did they do?
1: I remember they were all standing except for Mike Patton, and uh he was just like, nah, it's cool, man. We just want a little bit of time to ourselves." I was like, "No problem." Close the door. Went back <laughs> out. I'm standing, <laughs> standing outside their door, having an internal fanboy like. Ah! How do I go back in there without letting him know I'm not supposed to be here? And then I got, um, I got found by security and pitched out. But I went back around the side, found the same guitarist from the support band, said, oh, I better go do my job after chatting to him for another couple of minutes. So I was like, oh, I've left my security pass. He knew. He just laughed. He actually had a sticker, and everyone else had it on a lanyard, but his was on a sticker so I wouldn't interfere with guitar, I guess. So he just peeled it off and slapped it on my shirt, and I breezed straight back through. The whole way, almost back to their door again. Before the same security found me, and explained to me very politely that if they found me there again, they'd break my arm. And it was <laughs> it was delivered very matter of fact, but it was one of the scariest threats I've had in my life because they're saying, "Hey, look, here's your information. You make a decision."
0: Right. Like, yeah, I won't be- right. Third he's third looking time. you dead in the eye, and he's dead serious, no smile. You know, no threatening, no threatening kind of loud voice. Just, if we see you here again, we're going to break your arm. So.
1: Because then won't <laughs> be here. You'll be in
0: hospital. And that easy. <laughs> well, speaking of breaking arms. So for the next track, put the kids to bed before putting this one on. So the song Mel Practice. Now, this one reminds me of a song played in the background during a film when they show you where the killer is living in a horror movie. He's getting ready <laughs> for a night of madness. And I can just picture it. I'm making this up in my head, but I could just picture it. He's the killer's looking in the mirror with crazed eyes and it's super heavy. And in the background, the the song Malpractice is playing. Mike Patton is either yelling or chanting. But like I was saying earlier, Joe, when I first heard this, I I started smiling. And and maybe there's something wrong with me because of that. But uh, this song, I think, just separates the metalheads from the other music fans. Play this in a room and see if anybody comes up to you and says, right on, man, fake no more. Right on. You know, I think this is the one that's really going to pull out the the diehards. Either way, I, I think it's just... I think it's just still awesome, but probably the heaviest oh, song on the album, if you ask me.
1: And yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's the uh, only song on the album where Patton did basically all of the writing. So, all of the music, as well as the lyrics and the vocals. Uh, lyrics. So, to me, it reminds me most out of any Faith and War song of uh, Patton's work with Mr. Bungle, his childhood band. Yeah, um, I would agree. You know, which has also um, had a second lease of life recently too, and yeah, it's just really jarring. There's those time changes and the, the vocal styles jumping around. I think it does grab you for such a discordant song. It, it does as long as you've got an ear for heavier music. Obviously, it does grab you pretty much straight away. It's just the energy of it. It's it's like you've you know, jumped onto a freight train. It's just going and you're yeah. on for the ride.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it is by far the heaviest song. And this is not something that I would play for somebody if they were. Sort of into lighter music and they weren't sure, but they were interested in maybe hearing a little bit of Faith No More. I don't know. I'd probably butter them up a little bit before getting them into this one. But that's no knock on this song. I I think it's I think it's fantastic. And like I was saying earlier, I was I was laughing when I heard it. And when a lot of my friends who, you know, when I was into Faith No More, I had yet to really fall into Kind of the jam band circuit that I did later on, probably 94, 95, when I really started getting into bands like the Grateful Dead, Fish, a bunch of other groups similar to that. The Allman Brothers, Carlos Santana, on and on and on and on. But heavy metal was really, you know, I think my my core from the beginning. And this band, although we've been saying during the podcast, they weren't necessarily heavy metal and they probably throw things at us if they heard us say that. This song is definitely heavy metal or it's something i mean it's just it's dark so thank you again for listening to the albumreview.net podcast and thank you to joe keats for joining me for part one of a two-part album review of fake no more's fourth studio album angel dust if you're interested in any of the albums i've discussed in this or previous episodes go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own you guys You can listen to all of my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Lastly, I do want to hear from you, so please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions that you have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's g-p-o-t-t-e-r-s at albumreview.net. And don't forget to catch part two, of this two-part album review of Angel Desk coming soon. Stay tuned for updates on Instagram, join the mailing list, which is on the homepage of my website, or just keep refreshing your podcast feed, whatever blows your hair back. Thank you very much. Keep on listening, keep on reading, and keep on learning. Take a trip down by the highway. 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 Take a trip down by my.